This is a Clark University podcast. Even a conflict like Salem that's relatively well documented, there's so much that we're never going to know and that will always be frustrating. We keep saying that the ultimate goal is we want a time machine so we can go back and sit in the courtroom and see what's actually going on. Rachel Chris Stone didn't know much about witches or Salem until her sophomore year at Clark University. A history major looking for museum experience, Rachel found herself applying for an internship at the Salem Witch Museum. It didn't take long for her to become completely fascinated. Rachel's research focused on witchcraft until she graduated in 2017 with the mentorship of Professor Nina Kushner. Now she's the education director at the Salem Witch Museum. Most recently, I've been researching uh, Dorothy Good, who is the youngest victim of the Salem Witch Trials. She was four years old when she was accused of witchcraft, and she's accused because her mother um, had been named as a witch. Uh, she's named very early in the witchcraft trials, and uh, at the time, or you know, during this period, it's thought that witchcraft tends to run in families, particularly in the matriarchal line. It's not that surprising that her child is accused. It is remarkable that she's so young. She's accused, she's arrested, she's in jail for about seven or eight months. And the, her mother is executed during the trials. She has an infant sister who accompanies her mother to jail because she's too young to be separated from her mother. She dies in jail. So when this child is released, she's so traumatized that she is never able to really recover. And up until now, our understanding of her life after the trials just comes from a very brief note in a petition for restitution in 1711 made by her father that basically says, you know, she she is unable to care for herself because of the trauma of this experience. I recently found this kind of treasure trove of records that show a detailed record of where she is for the rest of, for much of her adult life. Because she wasn't able to care for herself, the town kind of takes over her care. So these records are kind of hiding in plain sight. So I found them this year, which was amazing, but also very depressing because her life does not get better after the trials. It's kind of a sad story all the way through. She's been kind of my primary focus this year, uh, and her story is really staying with me. It really speaks to witchcraft history, but also kind of broadly the fate of women in colonial society who had some sort of mental illness and the way that they would be treated by that society, which is you know, spoiler alert, not great. <laughs> I'm Melissa Hansen, a producer in Clark's communications office, and this is Challenge Change. Witchcraft is very much connected to the history of gender and kind of women's roles in colonial New England. Uh, witchcraft wasn't a gender-specific crime, but it certainly was a gender-related crime. You know, women make up the vast majority of witchcraft accusations. So men could be accused as well. It was very easy to suspect a woman. It was very easy to target a woman. And the stories of the people who are accused of witchcraft are just so interesting. And I've always kind of been interested in, uh, you know, witches and magic and things like that, but in a more pop culture sense. So when I finally kind of started learning about the real history behind it, I was just completely hooked. Part of my job has been working to update the content of our exhibits. 
witchcraft, like every other historic discipline, you know, our understanding of it changes and evolves with time. But witchcraft is kind of a very particular case because the academic discipline of witchcraft really didn't start growing until the mid 20th century is when it really becomes a real academic focus. So we've learned so much about witchcraft trials over the past 30, 40, 50 years. Uh, so when this museum was created, the museum itself was created in 1972. And then a second exhibit was added in 1999. The scholarship that was you know, believed to be correct at that time has since become dated. My particular focus has been working to update our second exhibit, which is about the European witchcraft trials that predate Salem, as well as where our stereotypical witch comes from, where that image of the witch has come to be as time has gone on. And then it also delves into uh, the modern phenomena of witch hunting. So my project for the past couple of years has been working to get all the dated scholarship out of that exhibit. Previous literature suggested that millions of people were killed during the witchcraft trials. Since then, researchers like Rachel have learned that figure isn't accurate. Now, that's an estimate that was correct, you know, that was thought to be correct in the 90s. But we have since learned that estimates a lot closer to about 45,000 people, so not quite millions. And that's just a product of there's been a lot more time to dive into the primary sources and get a grip of what was really going on. The other kind of big thing that needed to be corrected was the interpretation of pre-Christian religions and their influence on witch trials. There was this kind of theory that many of the people who were targeted during witchcraft trials were people who were practicing remnants of pre-Christian pagan religions. Many of them were midwives. And the reason why they were targeted was because they were hanging on to their pagan customs. And that's not true. We know that it's far more complicated than that. Certainly, some people were targeted during historic witchcraft trials because they were practicing magic. So elements of traditions that have been passed down for centuries that the Christian church kind of frowns upon. But that certainly is not the dominant reason people are accused of witchcraft. It's not the only reason. And midwives are also accused during witch trials, but they are not the only ones being accused. Updating the museum is just an ongoing project. Our next big project is the main presentation, uh, which is from 1972 and really needs a good fresh update. I'm part of a team of people that are working on that. And the goal is to have it done hopefully within the next few years. With descendants of witches visiting Salem every year, Rachel has been on a mission to provide information and resources. You know, over the past couple of years, myself and our assistant education director have really focused on studying the individuals involved in the Salem witch trials. We've been creating these resource packets for people who can trace their ancestry. We honestly meet hundreds of descendants every year, you know, I would say, especially over the past couple of years where there's been this surge in um, interest in genealogical research and resources like Ancestry.com and HME and things like that have become more and more available. More and more people are becoming aware of their ancestral connections to the witch trials. So it's really interesting. We meet people literally all the time from all over the country, sometimes from other places in the world. People who have been aware of this connection their whole lives and have family stories that have been passed down, which is always fascinating. Uh, or people who just became aware of this, you know, a couple days ago or a couple weeks ago and planned a trip to Salem as a result. They're really fascinating stories. 
many people, they don't even know where to start. They don't really know anything about the witch trials. They just know that they have somebody in their family involved in the conflict. Rachel can trace some of her current work at the museum back to her studies at Clark. I ended up doing an honors thesis, which was about the evolving image of the witch and how that connected to the changing understanding of women in 20th century American culture. And I have used that thesis so much in the work that I do. I've literally used sections from that thesis in my actual day-to-day job, which is kind of awesome. The historic crime of witchcraft is so often launched against women that when legal witchcraft trials came to an end, witches lingered in pop culture, you know, in folklore and fairy tales, in just general lore. And they were kind of this amalgamation of the stories and accusations that were going on during real witchcraft trials. So the fact that witches are almost always depicted as women, the fact that they're older women, Uh, that they ride broomsticks, that they have big noses, that they eat children. Those are all things that are based in part in these stories from the time when witch trials were really going on. So this connection of witches and women, it's there right away. So as time goes on, you start to see good witches emerge, particularly in the 20th century. And I thought that was very interesting because if you look at the basis of witchcraft, You know, witches are never depicted as good. The very definition of a witch is a person who had sold their soul to the devil and in return gained supernatural powers. This is not something anyone would want to be in any way during the early modern period. So this shift in witches slowly moving away from being the old scary woman in the woods to being positive, beautiful, and even empowering figures, I found very interesting. My argument is that you can see those changes taking place to witches aligned with second and third wave feminist movements in America. And at the same time, you start to see witches like Samantha Stevens from Bewitched, who is America's sweetheart. You know, she's this beautiful, good uh, housewife who is also a witch. And that power gives her a certain level of autonomy. And that just continues to change and grow. Today, we see witches are an incredibly empowering figure. They've become very much a symbol of the feminist movement, and that really gets rolling throughout the 20th century. The final exhibit at the Salem Witch Museum, known as the Witch Hunt Wall, offers some explanation on the beliefs that led to the witchcraft trials. It shows a formula for a witch hunt. Fear plus a trigger equals a scapegoat. A witch accusation is just looking for someone or something to blame who has nothing to do with that misfortune. It's usually the people being accused or people who don't fit into society. People who are poor, people who have done something socially taboo, like had a child before marriage or married beneath their station. Women who are independently employed as midwives or live alone, have been widowed and don't have a man living at home with them. These are people who very quickly get targeted during witchcraft trials. And this is something that we talk about in the context of other events in 20th century American history. So we then take that formula and use it to unpack the behavior that drove the internment of Japanese Americans after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. We talk about the communist blacklists of the 50s and the Red Scare. And then we talk about how the AIDS epidemic was blamed on the gay community in the 1980s. And it's just really, when you get down to it, it's the same pattern of behavior. 
something bad has happened, there's been a tension building, something terrible happens, and you reach for a group or a person to blame. We're still doing it today. The COVID-19 pandemic, where we see this unbelievable surge of hate crimes against Asian Americans. Uh, it's, it's really at its roots, the same thing that we see happening during witch trials. Rachel doesn't identify as a witch herself, but she did grow up with a love for Halloween. So I actually grew up in Andover, Massachusetts, which is about 30, 40 minutes away from Salem. Uh, and ironically, I had never been to Salem. You know, we, we just didn't do that as uh, field trips when I was a kid. Ironically, come to find out as I grew older and you know started working at the Salem Witch Museum, Andover actually had the most people accused of witchcraft of anywhere during the Salem Witch Trials. You know, the label Salem Witch Trials is in a way kind of a misnomer because the trials themselves did happen in Salem, but they impacted people living across Essex County, across Massachusetts. Ironically, I had been living in a place that was very deeply connected to the Salem Witch Trials. I grew up there and I had no idea. <laughs> I grew up in the 90s, so my uh, childhood was filled with Harry Potter and Sabrina the Teenage Witch. and. You know, we can bring some levity just to our day to day because witchcraft is such a big subject. It has all this pop culture, uh, you know, kind of components to it. And uh, many of us who work here, you know, love Halloween, love the pop culture side. But the truth of the matter is when you're really getting into the story of the Salem witch trials or historic witchcraft trials, it's it's hard, especially when you're really focusing on the individuals who are accused and executed. It's it's not a happy story from any way you look at it. And the stories just get worse the more you look into them and the more you start to understand what happened. To learn more about history at Clark, visit clarku.edu history. Challenge Change is produced by Andrew Hart and Melissa Hansen for Clark University. Find other episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. One, two, three, Clark! Despite the research, people still hang on to myths.